Dear glorious Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you once again for this beautiful day. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of life, the opportunity to come before you and worship freely in a free nation. And Lord, we also thank you for this, this great church, this message that you've given us, but most of all, Lord, your word, your Bible. And Lord, as we open your truths tonight, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and draw us near to you. Reveal these truths to us. Help us to know you better. When we leave tonight, Lord, it is our deepest wish that we know you a little bit better than we did when we came. And so, Lord, I just ask you to please put your words into my mouth. Lift us up. Draw us near to you. I ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. What parent hasn't looked into the eyes of a newborn child and asked the question, what will the future hold for my little one? What kind of world am I going to give this child? Or what kind of world are they going to inherit? Are they going to have things as good as I did? Or is it going to be tougher? Will the world be a safe place for my children or my grandchildren to live and grow up? Even when they get to be adults, you ask that question, amen? Amen. Is anybody in control of this world? How many times have you asked yourselves that? Is there any place where we can find reliable information about the future? Most people say, oh, Dan, you can't predict the future. You don't know what's going to happen. Who can we really trust? Well, we go to the Bible. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29. The Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. The Lord says that there will be things that he will not reveal to us that only he can understand and know. But those things that he's revealed to us, that he's given to us, are for us. This Bible was for us. For his people. For all people. Over 2,500 years ago, God revealed one of his secrets to an ancient pagan king. And the messages that he revealed are also for us and our children today. They weren't just for that king 2,500 years ago, but they were for all people downstream. This message gives us hope and confidence that the destiny of this world is in the hands of God. And one day, he will put an end to sickness. He will end suffering. He will end war, poverty, even death. He promises us that he will be victorious over even death. Praise the Lord. So tonight, we're going to take a journey through history, and we're going to discover God's plans for this world. Now remember our theme. You're going to see this slide in every presentation, I promise. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. As I told you last night, when you leave here, go back and check your Bibles. Play the audio CD. And everything that I've told you, go to your Bibles. Make sure it's there. Don't trust me. Trust God. So the first question, is the Bible trustworthy? I'm telling you to go to the Bible, but can you trust the Bible? How do I know the Bible is even true? Well, friends, tonight I promise you that tonight's study is going to demonstrate that this book is true. That the Word of God is absolutely reliable. Now, what is the claim of this book? the Word of God. That's a bold claim, isn't it? That's a very bold claim. It's like, well, how can you prove that, Dan? Well, we're going to see as we go through tonight. Now, anytime somebody makes a claim, it depends on how big the claim is about how much evidence you want, right? The greater the claim, the more evidence you need. If I told you I could run around the church in five minutes, you'd say, yes, Dan, I could do that. 
but if then I told you I could fly over the church, what would you say? Show me. Because me running around the church in five minutes isn't a, isn't a big claim. My little grandson can do that. But flying over the church is a whole other discussion, right? I need to see that. Can the Bible be trusted? Why do we believe? Why do people that teach from the Bible believe it in the first place? If you ask somebody, can the Bible be trusted, is it true? How many of us have answered that question, or how many have heard the answer? Well, because the Bible says so. Well, think about that. That's kind of a contradiction. And that might work for some people, but it won't convince everyone. In order to, for us to answer that question, we have to be able to give proof. God himself actually answers this question in Isaiah chapter 1. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Says the Lord. Now reason means what? To discuss, to debate, to reason with each other, to convince someone. Friends, I'm here to tell you tonight the Lord gave you a brain. He expects you to use it. He's not asking for just blind faith. He's going to give you proof. He's going to give you examples. He's going to prove who he is. He's going to reveal who he is to you. He wants you to use your brains. He's even asking you to question him. Not disrespectfully, but question me. Prove who I am. What's the greatest claim of the Bible? Turn me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 481. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Friends, that's the greatest claim of the Bible. It says, this book was produced solely by the inspiration of God. Now, it's a great claim, isn't it? What did I say about big claims? Requires a lot of evidence, right? Did you know that the Bible was written in three different languages? Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Written on three different continents by 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years. And in that time, in all those authors, and all the languages, the Bible forms a complete book. Unified in message, dealing with the most challenging topics of the universe. In fact, every book supports one another, and they're interdependent. They can stand alone. Now, I want you to think about how tough that could be to, to try to do that by accident. If I got 10 of you here and I said, let's write a cookbook. And each one of you have to write a chapter. And none of you can talk to each other. No email, no texting, no direction. What kind of cookbook do you think we're going to end up with? It's going to be all over the place. It's going to be disjointed. Well, that's kind of what has happened with the Bible. And if you think about the logistics of the Bible, across 1,600 years, 40 different people, But friends, that alone is not the Bible's greatest evidence. That's an amazing proof of the Bible in and of itself. But God is going to prove the accuracy of his Bible by showing us that his inspired word will predict the future. And then he's going to allow those events to unfold before man, before humanity. Because I'm going to show you what's going to happen for many, many, many centuries out into the future. And then I'm going to let it happen. 
Now, friends, that is a bold claim, amen? God's, I will predict the future. And then all we have to do is see if he was right. Now, this concept of predicting the future is called predictive prophecy. In fact, God declares his predictive prophecy in Isaiah chapter 46. Turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. God says, I'm going to declare things that haven't even happened yet. Though written centuries before, these words in this Bible are clearly a clear depiction of our current world. God doesn't need to read the newspaper of the day to tell us. He already knows what would come, and thus he spoke. Continues in, the, in Isaiah. That things are not yet done. Think about that. The Lord is going to allow us to make sense of the chaos and place every piece in its proper context. He's going to allow us to see how the pieces fall into place ahead of time. And Bible prophecy will reveal that we can have confidence in Jesus. And therefore, we can have confidence in his promise that he will guide us through this world safely if we allow him to direct our footsteps. If we allow him to lead our paths. God says, I'm going to show you I'm in control. I'm going to show you that I can predict the future, that I really am God. And with that, I'm going to call you to follow me. And I will deliver you. When we put our trust in him, we can be sure that our lives will have a source of peace and rest that only the Prince of Peace can provide. Now, friends, we can respect our friends. We can respect our ministers. We can respect our teachers. But the final say always comes from the Bible. Comes from God who inspired its writing. So as you listen to me throughout this series, as I said earlier, check everything with the Bible. Don't trust me or anyone else blindly. And as we trust the Bible, we're going to see that our understanding of the Bible must be guided by God himself. When you open your Bibles, do so in prayer. Do so in reverence. But also ask him to open your heart to open your mind, to reveal his truths to you. Now last night we talked about Revelation, and we're going to talk about a Revelation a lot throughout this series. And as I mentioned last night, Revelation deals with a lot of deep topics, doesn't it? The mark of the beast. We had a night dedicated to that. Armageddon. Got a night dedicated to that. The seven last plagues. Once again, I got a night dedicated to that. The United States and Bible prophecy. Did you know that the United States is actually foretold in Bible prophecy? We got a night on that. It's important for us to see the big picture in the Bible, though. So tonight we're going to look with a naked eye so we can actually see the big picture of Bible prophecy. The master key to Bible prophecy is a foundational prophecy that helps us to understand Revelation's end-time prophecies. As I told you last night, the Bible interprets itself. Anytime you're confused or you see things that are difficult to understand, the Bible itself will interpret it. This one is important. If you get this one, you'll get them all. You'll understand all the prophecies. If you miss this one, it's going to be very, very hard to understand the prophecies of the Bible that impact us today. As I said, this is the foundational prophecy, the master key of Bible prophecy, and it's found in the book of Daniel. Now why, if I'm talking about Revelation, and I'm talking about the end of time, why would I talk about Daniel? Why are we going back to the Old Testament? 
Well, there's several reasons. First of all, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation are actually written in a very similar way. They're both, for the most part, apocalyptic books. They have a similar writing style. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, actually rests very heavily on Old Testament Scripture. In fact, about two-thirds of the verses in the book of Revelation contain quotes lifted word for word from the Old Testament. There are more than 400 verses in the book of Revelation, and two-thirds of them actually come from the Old Testament. They contain quotes or allusions to Old Testament prophecies. So when you read the book of Revelation, you're reading something that John wrote based on Old Testament scriptures. He used the Old Testament for a lot of his illustrations, for a lot of his context, for a lot of his symbols. He lifted that out of the Old Testament because the people that time, that was the Bible they had. That was scripture because the New Testament was just being formed. So if you want to understand Revelation, you want to understand end-time prophecy, if you want to understand Jesus' plan for us at this point in time, we must look at it through the lens of the Old Testament. Remember I said earlier, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the books are interdependent. They rely on each other. They're interconnected. How many people have heard, well, I'm a New Testament Christian? I hear all the time. And I say, praise the Lord, so am I. But I'm also an Old Testament Christian too. Because there's no difference. They're interdependent. They rely on each other. Now in Revelation, John wrote in a sort of code using signs and symbols. Signs and symbols that his readers at that time were familiar with from the Old Testament. So, for example, John was able to write about something like Babylon in the book of Revelation. And the people reading this would say, well, yeah, I know this from the Old Testament scriptures that I've already read and I've studied and I've understood. They think, well, I understand something about Babylon. I've heard the stories from my family. I've read it in the scriptures. So John and Jesus reveal in Revelation to their readers events through symbols that have already been established in Scripture. So that he's writing about things that he's referencing, that they're familiar with, that readers are familiar with. So back to the question. Can the Bible be trusted? Does it come from God? Well, we're going to go back about 600 years before Christ to an ancient king's bedroom. Back to the time of Daniel. And one night the king at this time was King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of ancient Babylon. And he had a dream. When he woke up, he couldn't remember the dream. But he knew it was not an ordinary dream. Obviously, it must have been restless. It must have really stirred him up. It must have caused him discomfort. Something told him this was not an ordinary dream. He didn't have some big monster coming after him. I've had that dream. It was, in fact, a dream that would outline history for the next two and a half millennia. But he didn't know that at the time. Turn me to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to spend a tremendous amount of time in Daniel chapter 2 tonight. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Page 359 if you're using a pew Bible. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. So we're told he's he's having dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Have you ever had a dream like that? Wakes you up out of a sound sleep, startles you awake, hearts racing, cold sweat. Sounds like I can, I've experienced it, right? Something that has caused you not to be able to go back to sleep. Well, that's what the king's going through. And as we see in this story, the king is greatly troubled. So he calls together a group of men. His wise men, they were referred to. 
They were magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. He summoned them to his royal palace. And he told them after this dream, he says, tell me what I dreamt last night. And then tell me what its significance is. What's the meaning of this dream? He's trying to figure out what the dream was and also what it meant. They answered him. Daniel chapter 2, verse 4. He said, oh, king, live forever. Pretty pious now, aren't they? Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. Now, why do you suppose they wanted the king to tell them the dream? Because they couldn't tell him, they couldn't tell him the dream. They weren't capable of it. They didn't know. So they're asking him, you tell me the dream, and then we'll give you an interpretation. King Nebuchadnezzar was upset. He got mad. He says, I don't even know what I dreamt. (laughs) God mysteriously took it from his mind. The king continues. In verse 9, he says, therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. He was testing them. He said, don't pretend to be who you are saying you are. Don't pretend to know something you don't know. You have been telling me, I've been paying you, you've been living off me, telling me you could predict the future. Well, here you go. Earn your pay. Prove it to me now. Tell me what I dreamed. Now, friends, it's clear the king didn't trust him, did he? Not a bit. And the only way he was going to trust their interpretation was if they told him the dream first. Because if they could tell him the dream, then he would know. Well, hey, these guys can see in the they can see things that they don't they didn't really know. But if I told you the dream, then you could make up an interpretation. Anybody can make up an interpretation. So when the king demands this, they protest. Verse 10: There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Friends, this is true. (laughs) Amen? There's not a man on earth. They were actually admitting that they couldn't do what they had claimed to do. Now think about that, how dangerous ground they were on. We've been been living off you. We've been living large. Telling you we can do something, and now we have to admit we can't really do it. Friends, there was no one on this earth that could do what the king asked. Only the God of heaven could reveal what the king's dreams were in that bedroom that night. Only the God of heaven can accurately, precisely reveal the future if he's truly God. And as I said, that's a bold claim, isn't it? The king became so angry that he rashly ordered the execution of all the wise men in the entire kingdom, all of Babylon. All of them, not just the ones that were in the palace. Anybody that has the title of wise man, kill them. I don't trust any of you. Yeah, that's a, that's a harsh decision, isn't it? Let's go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 12. For this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. News of the king's command had gotten out. It was spreading like wildfire, especially if you were a wise man. (laughs) Your job was in jeopardy more than your job, your life. Friends, Daniel wasn't an astrologer, he wasn't a magician, he wasn't a soothsayer, but he was one of the king's wise men. So when Daniel asked why he was to be killed, Arioch, the executioner, told him the story of what happened. He gave him the background, he said, this is what happened, the king had a dream, and those that claimed to be able to tell the future couldn't tell what happened. Let's continue, verse 16. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. 
Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. So he went in and he asked for time. That they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He asked for time. So give me some time. And we may not recognize those names, but later in Daniel we know them, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel and his friends. Now, clearly the king had cooled down a little bit. And also, I believe in my heart that the Lord touched the king's heart. Softened his heart. Because friends, that's what Jesus does. Even the harshest of enemies softened his heart. A pagan king. So what did Daniel and his friends do? Did they go check the chicken bones? Did they go read the stars? No. They held a prayer meeting. They got on their knees and they prayed to their God. They prayed that God would reveal the dream to them. That God would reveal the future to them. I will go and pray to my God is what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar. And I will come back and I will tell you of the dream and the interpretation. Let's continue, verse 19. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we have asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Now friends, that's a prayer. Amen? I want you to notice something. That Daniel was revealed this in a night dream himself. He was revealed to it in a dream. So God rewarded his servant. Not just to keep him alive, but to use him for his purpose. God revealed the dream and its interpretation to his servant in answer to prayer. Friends, I promise you, Jesus is wanting us to pray to him. That's what this whole series is about. What's the center of prophecy? Jesus. You're here every night. The center of prophecy is Jesus. And Jesus wants our prayers. He wants to help us. The mysteries of God are explained to men and women who pray. Who pray. And Daniel prayed. In verse 23 again, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. Notice who Daniel gives the credit to. God. So then Daniel goes in to see the king. And he told him that while it's true that no wise man, no astrologer, no magician, no soothsayer could reveal that dream. And in verse 28 he says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. God has revealed an important dream to a pagan king. He has revealed this dream. He's telling us that this prophecy that we're going to be studying, that was revealed, takes us down to the end of time. Latter days. When we talk about latter days, we mean the end. This prophecy is going to take us from Daniel's day down through the nations of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. It's going to take us through the divided empires of Europe. It's going to take us down to where? Latter days. 
this prophecy is going to lead us through the stream of time, from Daniel's time to the end of time. It continues in verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. It continues, this image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. See the picture? This huge, great image was revealed to the king. It continues in verse 34. And then you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in verse 36 it says, this is the dream. Now notice he didn't say, king, is that the dream? Did I get it right? Daniel spoke with authority because he trusted God. He knew that whatever God revealed to him was going to be true, was going to be factual. He didn't come to the king in fear. He didn't come trembling. He came out of respect, but he also came sure because he trusted God. And he says, this is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. So not only have I told you the dream, but I'm now I'm going to tell you what it means. Verse 37, 38, you, O king, are a king of kings. You are this head of gold. Once again, respect. Nebuchadnezzar was the king. So Daniel tells the king that the head of gold of this image represents him and his kingdom. He says, you are the head of gold. The head of gold represents Babylon, which was in existence from 605 to 539 B.C. when they ruled the world. Ruled the entire known world at that time. It was the most powerful kingdom. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar established one of the most fantastic empires the world has ever seen. In fact, his empire was lavishly adorned with gold. It was the wealthiest kingdom in the world at that time. It had luxurious gardens, including the hanging gardens that were one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. Babylon was 10 miles on a side. Now, we think think about how great Rome was. Rome was only six miles on a side. And Athens was only four miles. This was a massive city. Massive. The Temple of Marduk was 300 foot high. Outside of it laid glazed tile with blue glaze just Beautiful. And inside it, it was overlaid with gold. The whole temple. And that one temple alone, Nebuchadnezzar used 18 tons of gold. Do you see why God used gold to describe Babylon? He did so because its chief god, Belmarduk, was setting in a lavish golden temple. It was something that God knew they would understand. This Belmarduk, the chief god of Babylon, was actually a golden image on a golden throne before a golden altar beside a golden candlestick. Are you getting a theme? A whole lot of gold. Eight and a half tons of solid gold were used for the altar and the throne alone. In fact, one of the reasons that Babylon conquered Jerusalem was because they knew there was gold there. (laughs) No wonder God said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold. Daniel's prophecy continues. Verse 32. It says, it's chest and arms of silver. 
What we're going to see here is that after Babylon, another kingdom is going to arise. That kingdom, the Medes and Persians, actually overthrow the Babylonians. We don't have to guess the meaning of this prophecy. You say, well, Dan, how do you know that these metals, this image, represent kingdoms? What do the breast and arms of silver actually represent? How do you know that? Once again, we'll let the Bible interpret itself. In verse 39, it says, After you shall arise another kingdom. He's going to lay out history in this image. Bible prophecy predicted that the nation of Babylon would not last forever. Now think about that at that time. Who would ever accept that? This massive, powerful nation. But the God of heaven, Jesus himself, revealed through his servants that another kingdom was going to arise, that Babylon would actually disappear. In fact, history reveals how this actually happens. In Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar, the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, has a party. It's more like a drunken feast. For a thousand of his lords. The wine is flowing, the music's playing, long-robed men held close, lavishly dressed Babylonian women. It was a picture of debauchery. And in the midst of that drunken free-for-all, the seductive, enchanting music and the immorality, God interrupts Belshazzar's feast. And a bloodless hand writes upon the wall these words, Mene, which means God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now friends, don't trust me. You can verify the history of Babylon and Medo-Persia with any good history book. Cyrus, the general of the armies of the combined countries of Mede and Persia, overthrew this unconquerable power called Babylon. In fact, Daniel is not the only one who predicted this fact. God himself named Cyrus approximately 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Now, does that help? Would you believe in the Bible's true? Turn me to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. The double doors they're referring to are the gates of Babylon. Here's exactly what happened. Cyrus's soldiers dug canals to divert and dry up the river Euphrates. And then they marched under the walls of Babylon and came up inside the city. Friends, I'm here to tell you tonight and every night, the Bible is not just an ordinary book. It's not an ancient text. When you and I open the word of God, we are opening the word of the living God. The creator God. Friends, its prophecies are indeed true. Daniel continues in verse 39. We see a third empire. This time it's depicted by thighs of bronze. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Anybody recognize that helmet? The Greeks. Greece. Alexander the Great. We've all heard of Alexander the Great. Absolutely. Alexander the Great led his armies behind bronze armor. With their bronze helmets, their bronze breastplates, their bronze shields, their bronze swords, the Greek armies dominate the known world, and they do so with tremendous swiftness. In fact, Alexander conquers one million Medo-Persians with only 40,000 troops. So now we have Babylon, the head of gold, Medo-Persia, the silver, Greece, the bronze. 
And in verse 40, it says a fourth kingdom. So we're going to see another kingdom rise up. And that fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. What God is revealing is that no, Greece would not rule forever. God told Daniel and the king that even another kingdom would rise. Edward Gibbon wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He was not a Christian or even a Bible believer. But in this book he wrote, quote, The images of gold and silver or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successfully broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. And in fact, that's what happened. Rome conquers Greece. Rome rules from 168 B.C. to 476 A.D. And Rome dominated the world. I want you to notice, as we're going through this progression, what's happening with the metals? They're getting less valuable, but stronger. Gold is a soft metal. Silver is a soft metal, but not quite as soft as gold, and so on. Then now we're to iron. It was during the days of Rome that Jesus Christ was born as a baby. Joseph and Mary, they fled an oppressive Roman Empire, and they went to hide in Egypt. Jesus was tried by a Roman governor. He was crucified by Roman soldiers on a Roman instrument of torture. It was the Roman government who sanctioned and carried out the crucifixion of Christ. For more than 500 years, Rome appeared invincible. Her flag waved from the British Isles all the way to the Persian Gulf. From the North Sea to the Sahara Desert. From the Atlantic Ocean to the Euphrates River and beyond. It was one of the largest empires of the world. Surely it would never fall, right? What did the Bible predict? Daniel 2, now verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. I want you to notice, the Bible does not predict the fifth ruling empire, which would actually rise after Rome. It predicts a divided empire. It says Rome's going to fall, but it's not going to fall to a single subsequent empire. Another single world empire would not follow Rome. Instead, these feet of iron and clay are going to represent divisions of the Roman Empire. And this is exactly what happened. Europe was divided up exactly like prophecy reveals. The barbarian tribes attack Western Europe in the middle of the 4th century. And during their attacks on the Roman Empire, they divide up the kingdom exactly as prophecy predicts. Friends, a man once asked a preacher, how do you know the Bible is true? And the preacher says, well, sir, you are standing on it. He says, what do you mean? The earth beneath your feet. Prove it. The preacher continued. He says, the Bible predicted that Europe would be divided. And Europe today exactly fulfills that prophecy. The skeptic was astounded. Friends, the Bible goes on. In verse 43, it says, As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. This divided empire, what the Bible is going to tell us, or what the Bible has told us, was that it's going to try to get back together. These countries are going to try to adhere to one another. They're going to try to get back to being their former greatness. In fact, throughout history, the kings of Europe attempted this through intermarriage, through war, through intrigue, trying to reunite Europe. In fact, one of the best examples of this was when Napoleon divorced his wife Josephine and married Louise of Austria simply to secure relations with that country and to further his goals to unite Europe. 
That was the sole reason he entered into that marriage. But as prophecy predicts, he utterly failed. The Bible says they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, friends, besides intermarriage, there was a second way political leaders attempted to unite Europe. And I mentioned it earlier. They tried to do this through military conquest, war. Charles V, he wanted to unite Europe. He failed. Charlemagne, same goal, wanted to unite Europe. He failed. Napoleon, who we've already mentioned, tried to unite all of Europe. In fact, by all accounts, Napoleon should have had an easy time. Except for this freak snowstorm. Friends, it wasn't a freak. God is in control. God said, you will never unite. And what seemed like an easy victory for Napoleon failed. In fact, Napoleon wrote in his own journal of his ambitious plans. So there will be one Europe. There will be one currency. There will be one language. There will be one government over all of Europe. He wanted to reunite the empire. But when he was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo in June of 1815, then he said this, God Almighty is too much for me. Friends, the echoes of an ancient prophecy written hundreds of years before speak to our hearts today. The Bible is accurate. You can believe it. All of the attempts to unite Europe for any length of time will have to deal with these few words from an ancient Bible prophecy. They will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. God says that Europe will not adhere to one another. Indeed, this prophecy is proven true. Europe has been divided. It continues to be divided down through the centuries. Charles V, Charlemagne, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, all would-be world leaders behind massive, powerful armies, and they all failed. Think about Hitler. His fiery speeches, they whipped up the masses. His motto was one people, one empire, one leader. And it appeared like he was going to accomplish his ambition by uniting Europe. It appeared he was on the precipice of creating one Europe under German rule. In fact, in the war, the Allied forces were trapped at Dunkirk. Defeat seemed certain. But remarkably... Hitler ordered his troops and his tanks to stop advancing and to resupply on the doorstep of victory. What stopped Hitler's tanks? I'll tell you what stopped it. An ancient prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 that declares that from the days of the Roman Empire, Europe would never reunite. The Bible predicts in the book of Revelation a final, last attempt to reunite Europe. This time, though, it will be under a religious, political union. Turn me to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, verse 12 through 14. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. But they receive authority from one hour as kings with the beast. Now, friends, here's the significance of this prophecy. It's telling us that for a very short period of time, the nations of Europe and the rest of the world are going to enter into this religious political confederation. And it's going to be right before the return of our Lord. Notice how Revelation describes this temporary unity. It says, 
These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So here we have a prediction in the book of Revelation, a prophecy, a gift from Jesus, that says for one hour, prophetically one hour, which is a short period of time, the nations of Europe are going to appear to come together. Now let's think about this. Let's reflect on it. And let's put it in the prism of last night's message, Signs of the Times. Are there any movements to unite Europe today? The flag is the symbol of the common market of Europe. Better known as the European Union or the EU. And their motto is, many voices, one people. Now friends, when the EU tried to get together, when it first organized, it was an economic trade union. Why does an economic trade union need a military? Why does it need one currency? Why does it need political power over all of its member states? Many voices, one people. In fact, the euro is a result of an effort that seeks to establish a common currency in Europe. Revelation and prophecy, Bible prophecy tells us that there will be an attempt to unite peoples politically to prepare them for a beast power that is going to unite them religiously. Religiously and politically, they're going to unite under one great system. So what if war, conflict, strife around the world combined with famines and economic failures? What if they all happened together? We talked about that last night, didn't we? And an idea, a solution is put forth. Oh, we can fix that. We just need to unite. A united world, a united society. We can all just become one. Sound familiar? The Bible says that these are of one mind and they give their power and authority to the beast. The Bible predicts this time today. This time today. Jesus laid this out centuries ago for us. I want to tell you how reliable this prophecy truly is in practical terms. In fact, this prophecy saved a man's life. In fact, the lives of many men. Franz Hausel was a soldier in the German army during World War II. In fact, his grandson is a noted archaeologist today. Franz was a German Christian who was drafted or conscripted into the military. And while serving the German army in the Soviet Union, he was suddenly called into a special meeting with several of his superior officers. And they wanted to ask him some questions about the Bible. In the middle of war. So he saw an opportunity. And he told them he wanted to ask them some questions. And one of them was a history professor. And Franz wanted to ask him some historical questions relating to the Bible. So Franz starts in Daniel chapter 2. And he goes through the prophecy exactly how we're going through it tonight. And as he paused to ask questions, the history professor confirmed everything that Franz was saying. He says, yes, everything you have said is accurate throughout history. So then Franz Hosel decides to take a major risk. And he shows them Daniel chapter 2, verse 43. Remember, these will not adhere to one another. What was he telling them? He's telling them that Hitler was going to lose. Now that's a death sentence in that army. He said Hitler's going to fail. He didn't say it in those many words. He was telling them that Hitler was going to try to reunite Europe. And here is a normal soldier serving in that army, telling a group of army officers that it will never happen. It will never be successful. Imagine that. He could have been executed on the spot for treason. Instead, these men listened to him carefully. Remember what I said? Jesus touches the hearts of men. 
They touched the heart of these officers. Jesus spoke to them. The Holy Spirit. The next day, his superior officer calls him in. Imagine that. He had to imagine how he was feeling that day. Am I going out in front of the firing squad? Instead, he says, Hazel, you are in charge of purchasing. And I want you to stockpile as much fuel as you can. Basically, what his superior officer was saying is, based on what the Bible says, we are not going to win this war. We are far from home. So one of these days, we're going to have to get back to Germany. And we're not going to be able to do that without fuel. So Hazel, I want you to stockpile fuel for that time. And when the order for retreat finally came, Franz's company got out of the Ukraine as quickly as they could because they had stockpiled fuel. They were able to get back safely to Germany. Every single one of the men in his group were saved. They got back home alive, unharmed. They got back home because God's word can be trusted. The lives of these men, they placed their trust in the word of God. My friends, during World War II, there were preachers in England who would whip up large crowds together at a time right when it appeared that Britain was going to fall. And they would advertise on the streets by saying, the Bible says Hitler cannot win. I've seen pictures of the signs. In fact, they say, come and hear the evidence. And the crowds came. And what the preachers told them came to pass. All because God said there would be four kingdoms. The fourth one would divide, and they would not adhere to one another. And that's exactly what happened. Now, friends, I ask you tonight, if you're a skeptic of the Bible, I ask you to open your heart, open your mind, to think about what you've heard tonight, to rethink your position. Not because I've been clever. Not because I have spoken smooth words. I have laid out history that you can go back home, go on the internet, Google what I have told you. There is no question to the authenticity of this prophecy. There is no question that Daniel wrote this prophecy down 600 years before the birth of Jesus. There's no question that it was inspired by God and that it has been proven to be accurate. As I said, you can look up these events in any secular history book. In fact, I urge you to. Now, some of you may say or you may hear, well, Dan, that sounds really good. But I heard Daniel, the book of Daniel was written after these events. Of course, it's easy to write history after something happens, isn't it? And that was a prevailing thought until 1947. 1947. A boy was throwing rocks into a cave broke some clay pots, and set the world on fire for Bible history. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And the Dead Sea Scrolls included an entire copy of the book of Daniel. In fact, the most complete, oldest copy of the book of Daniel. You say, well, okay, Dan, but we don't, how do we know how old it is? Because the language it was written in, the Aramaic, dates to the 4th or 5th century B.C. This is confirmed by linguistic experts who aren't Christians. So that this version of Aramaic was only used in this little period of history. And that's what it was written in, on that scroll. Well before the events ever happened. Friends, the reason... We are not to be interested in any earthly kingdom. It's because Jesus has promised us a heavenly kingdom. Amen? In fact, his prediction in Revelation chapter 17 says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. History has followed the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 like a blueprint. 
If the Bible has been perfectly accurate, predicting the future across all of this time, you must trust it to continue to do so. Friends, the political workings of this planet, I assure you, are not random. It's not happenstance. Events happening in this world this very minute are a sign that Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, will soon return. His return is the only hope for a world standing on the feet of iron and clay ready to crumble. Daniel's prophecy of the image and Revelation's prophecies point us forward to a new time. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, it says, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And then in verse 44, it says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So what is this rock that we see that comes out and smashes this image? Friends, it's the rock of ages, Jesus Christ. We cannot have any confidence in earthly kingdoms because they will rise and fall. They are temporary. They are purely illusionary. But we can put our trust in God's kingdom that it will never fall, will never fail, will never fall apart. This kingdom, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, says it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. This rock, this final superpower will conquer all, will replace all. Friends, I'm here to tell you there is hope on the way. There is help on the way. The stone cut out without hands. Christ's supernatural kingdom will come. It will smash down the kingdoms of this world. The next world superpower is Christ's forever kingdom. Turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Friend, Babylon rises and falls. But he shall reign forever. Meda Persia rises and falls, but the Lord of Lords will reign forever. Greece rises and falls, but he shall reign forever. Rome rises and falls, but Christ will reign forever. The Roman Empire divided. The European common market rises and falls. One world government attempts will rise and fall. Because beyond it all is God, and he shall reign forever and ever. He will reign. The kingdoms of this world will crumble. The great longings of the human heart is for peace and security. We long for a stable society. We long for a world where we can bring up our children without the fear of war, without poverty, without disease, without hunger. We want a future that is filled with hope, not fear. Friends, one day, Jesus will come. One day, he will stream down the corridors of the sky. One day, he will blaze past all the planets. One day, the earth will shake and tremble and roll. And one day, we shall all look up and see him. And we will say, this is our God we have waited for him, and he will save us. One day he will come, and we will be caught up in the sky for the ultimate space trip. One day we shall behold him far beyond the sky. We will be taken up, and we will reign with him forever and ever. We will regain our birthrights. We will regain that place that we were promised. And friends, I'm here to ask you tonight, I want to be ready for that event. Don't you? Amen. Friends, Jesus reaches out to you tonight. He invites you to ask him to sit on the throne of your heart so you can sit with him on the throne of eternity. Choose today.
to make the commitment to seriously discover what Christ and his kingdom are all about. Now, friends, I ask you, go to your Bibles. Get on your knees to pray. Search history books in the, in the Internet. Test what I've told you tonight. I challenge you to find any error in this prophecy, because you can't. God said, I'll predict the future. And he did. And only God can do that. Only God can do that. So friends, I want to ask you as I close tonight, if you want to have Jesus sit on the throne of your heart, raise your hand with me tonight. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Merciful Father, Lord, once again, we thank you for all that you've done for us, all the blessings you've given us. And most of all, Lord, we thank you for this gift of the word, these true prophecies, all the promises that you've given us. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for loving us, for being willing to forgive us. Most of all, Lord, for being patient, being long-suffering. But Lord, we know that we're close to the end of time. Time is running short. And we just saw in your word how close we are to your soon return. And Lord, it is my deepest prayer that you support your Holy Spirit unto all these dear souls. Reach into their hearts. Draw them near to you. Bring them closer and closer. Reveal your truths of your word to their hearts so that they can draw a deeper, closer personal relationship with you. Lord, I ask you please to go before them tonight. Keep them safe on their travels. Bring them back tomorrow night. Keep us all close to you. Help us to become like you. Lord, I ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to thank you for coming tonight. Please come out tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. We're going to study Jesus' answer to evil and earth suffering. Why is there evil in the world? We're going to study the Bible. We're going to find out why. Thank you so much. Have a glorious night. God bless.